That's how we approach our call writing really across the board in all of our covered call mandates. We'll do that here with Rogers as well. You're able to generate a little bit extra premium than you would otherwise, and you're allowing for a little bit extra growth also. Welcome to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. In these timely episodes, we provide the latest investment news and expert commentary on the markets, the economy, and investing. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. Tensions continue to mount at Rogers Communications this week as Chairman Edward Rogers sought to remove the independent directors who blocked his attempt to oust CEO Joe Natale. Chris McKinney, Alfred Lee, and your host, Mark Grays, offer insights into this bizarre tale of family infighting while giving investors investment strategies to help navigate the chaos. Our experts also discuss their particular take on low-volatility stocks, China's relative value, the status of President Biden's infrastructure bill, and the persistence of high inflation. Before we hear from the team, please consider subscribing to Views from the Desk on your preferred podcast platform. And for many more ETF insights and resources, visit the Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. Hello, and welcome to our ETFs weekly insight call with our team of experts. I'm today's host, Mark Grays, head of product for BMO Game Canada. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us today. Thanks for listening in. We appreciate your time. We're joined by Chris McKinney and Alfred Lee, both our portfolio managers on our ETF desk. Thanks to both of you for joining us this morning. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Good morning. Good morning. Great. Let's get started. Rogers Communications is certainly the, the start of the week. Uh, we've got family squabbles. We've got board, boardroom activities. Certainly a compelling story for us all to be paying attention to. Can you give us an update on Rogers? While explaining the dual voting class structure where somehow the family still has 97% of the of the voting shares. And then looking at the ETF lineup, this really hits home the benefits of diversification, you know, across sectors, uh, across markets. If I look at our covered calls, our largest weight is 5% ZWU, the utilities covered call. Your thoughts on how this then impacts writing, assuming there's more volatility. Thanks. Sure. And, you know, cer- certainly, as you say, um, you know, quite the story going on at Rogers here. Um, I'm not sure this has ever been seen in uh, Canadian corporate history anyway, but um, may- maybe just to recap some of the things that, uh, that have been happening there. Um, you know, first of all, you know, Rogers as, as, a, uh, as a company, the share price has not performed um, all that great over the last couple of years, you know, relative to others in its sector and relative to um, other stocks within Canada as well. So perhaps leading to some of this um, boardroom and family squabbles, as you uh, as you mentioned. Um, just a recap of what's been going on here. First of all, um, Edward Rogers um, is the chairman uh, of the board at Rogers, and you know this kind of came to started to come to a head last week or over the last couple of weeks when Edward Rogers moved to fire uh, the CEO of the company. Um, and so at that time, when he moved to fire the CEO, other board members, including other members of the Rogers family, um, actually voted against removing the CEO and then voted to remove Edward as chairman of the board. So now this is where 
this dual voting class structure comes into play. Because as you mentioned, um, the Rogers family still owns 97% of the voting shares um, of Rogers Communications. And now it's important to note that those shares are not held by individual members of the family. Like, you know, some go to Edward, some go to the, the daughter, some go to the mother. All those shares are held within a Rogers control trust. So the, a family trust actually owns all of those shares. Um, and now important uh, for voting rights is that Edward Rogers is chairman of that trust as well. So Edward Rogers believes he has control of the voting shares, uh, which he can then use to vote to essentially remove um, certain members of the board. And that's what he has um, tried to do. He's tried to replace um, some members of the board with five others that are uh, a bit more friendly to, you know, what, what he's trying to do here. Um, and so you now have a situation where two different groups of people have claimed to have control of the board um, and, and want two different CEOs at the exact same time. Um, so quite, quite confusing, obviously, as to, to who ultimately has control here. Um, I think the prevailing thought is that Edward Rogers, as chairman of the family trust that owns these voting shares, um, ultimately will be able to put whoever he wants on that board. Um, but this has to play out over time. You can't just do this on the spot. Um, there's procedures that have to be involved. Um, and this could take at a minimum several months to actually play out. Um, if, if indeed it actually does play out exactly how he wants it to, it'll still take time to go through that process. So this is a situation that's not really going to go away. I think both sides have indicated they're ready for a fight for the long haul. And so I think this is going to take place um, in the courtrooms over the next several months as to who actually owns or has control of Rogers, um, the voting rights of those shares, um, who can name the board and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so this has led to um, Rogers share price falling off about 6%. You know, it was trading in the 60s as of last week. Now we're down to in the $56 range. Um, as you know, the market obviously, the main thing markets don't like is uncertainty, right? Um, and so, you know, as I mentioned, the share price has been suffering a little bit over the last couple of years. Perhaps on the other end of this, when there's a clear um strategy and structure in place with a new CEO or even the current CEO. Um, maybe some of um, that cloudiness gets removed and, and the share price can start to move up again. But I think until then, you're going to see this, this stock kind of trade a little bit sideways for a while. Um, and oh, by the way, uh, Rogers is also attempting to take over shock communications while all this is happening. That's, that's sort of become a side project now almost, it seems like. Um, so a lot going on there. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, this really, again, highlights the benefits of diversification, not just in broad market um, ETFs. You know, if you buy a Canadian equity uh, ETF, Rogers would be a small part of that. Um, but when you start getting a bit more specific into sector funds and, you know, you mentioned our covered call utilities fund. Obviously, Rogers, not a utility, but, um, you know, that that covered call fund invests in broader, uh, broader than just the utility um, sector, we, we have telecommunication stocks, obviously, like Rogers, we have pipelines as well. So stocks that are utility-like in, in, in their nature. And so, you know, when you take a look at owning some of these sector funds, you really have to ask yourself, how is this fund structured? 
um, what is the concentration risk in some of these companies. Um, and so that's why, for the most part, um, if you see a sector ETF offered by BMO ETFs, generally they tend to be equal weight um, in terms of their weighting structure. And that really, again, um, diversifies the exposure to any one stock within a sector. And that's particularly important when you are talking about sector funds um, that can have a little bit narrow, um, uh, I guess, membership in them uh, in terms of relatively few companies that make up a particular sector. So equal weighting that exposure uh, really minimizes the exposure to any one stock in particular. As for how this impacts the call writing on this stock, um, you know, one, one feature of, of volatility, uh, which is kind of the, the primary input into pricing for, for options, um, is that when stocks fall off, like we've seen with Rogers here, that implied volatility gen tends to spike up. And we have seen that with, with Rogers here as well. And so that really just indicates the market's uncertainty around where this stock is going to move going forward in the near future and to what degree the stock moves as well. So once that implied volatility um, really moves up, that allows us to set our strikes on our call options much higher than we would have in the past. Um, and so that's what we'll, we'll do with Rogers here when we, when we write more call options on this stock, um, is you give it a little bit of room to breathe, so to speak, um, in anticipation of the possibility that there is a bit of a bounce back in the stock um, maybe not all the way back to where it was, but certainly a, a rebound sort of uh, situation where you can see that stock spike up a little bit um, uh, as investors start to think maybe the sell-off was overdone a little bit. So that's how we approach our call writing really across the board in all of our covered call mandates is as volatility increases, um, we increase um, the room for growth for these stocks before there's any trade-off made between income from the call options and um, and getting called away on them. So we'll, we'll do that here with Rogers as well. You're, you're able to generate a little bit extra premium than you would otherwise, and, you, and you're allowing for a little bit extra growth also. And maybe just one other point on this, as you mentioned, you know, the, the dual voting class structure, um, this is something again, that maybe investors should start, start paying a little bit more attention to. As we've seen a lot of companies in the recent past um, come out with these multiple uh, vote or dual voting structure type uh, securities where one class of stock might have some or even no voting rights, um, whereas another class of stock generally held by some insiders uh, will contain the majority of the votes or potentially even all of the voting. Um, and so this is something that, again, investors should take a look at. Index providers did look at this a couple of years ago. Um, S&P decided to not include any companies that have this dual class voting structure in their indices, um, but at the same time grandfathered in all existing companies that are already in there. So companies like Google or sorry, Alphabet, um, Google's parent company, for example, have two different voting uh, class um, uh, stocks out uh, listed on, on, on the market and are both in the S&P 500, um, Facebook as well and others. Um, and so, again, with an S&P index, you won't get these sort of things creeping in going forward, but any company that's already there is, is grandfathered in, so to speak. Um, MSCI, on the other hand, decided to, you know, leave this question to, to others um, and will continue to include any company regardless of, of the voting structure as, as long as it meets their other requirements. So um, something to think about when you're, when you're choosing your investments, especially if they are index-based, 
um, to, to get a good sense of, you know, how the different index providers handle this. Um, and in the end, what you're actually getting uh, when you're buying um, these particular stocks is, are you getting a, a say in how the company is run? Are you getting that vote? And is it an equal vote across the board? Great. Thanks for that, Chris. Really good recap and really important to understand how you can then be flexible in the call writing strategies with the covered call ETFs. Um, as a follow-up, staying with staying with Rogers, advisors have come in and asked um, about how Rogers then fits in a low-vol strategy. Uh, in other words, our ZLB ETF. In these rules-based active strategies, can you comment on how you go about security selection particularly as you look forward and stocks become more volatile? Thanks. Sure. And, um, you know, ZLB and really all of our low vol strategies in general, um, you know, the main, uh, the main data point we look at when we're constituting these portfolios is a stock's beta. Um, beta is a measure of a stock's sensitivity to the broad market. So, you know, when the broad market moves up or down, how much, um, does that underlying stock move up and down and does it move in the same direction, et cetera. And so, you know, we really rebalance these twice a year and uh, going into the end of the year here, we'll, we'll do what, what's called our reconstitution where you'll see a little bit of turnover potentially uh, um, from the names that are in the portfolio. And what we do is, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll let this earning season play out that we're currently in. And once the earning season is over, you know, that's generally when stock movements start to, you know, decline a little bit as earnings are, are the, the main impetus for for stocks moving up or down significantly. Um, so once this earnings cycle is through, we'll start to take a look at what those numbers look like. Um, you know, as uh, as a reminder to, to investors, we look at five years of data when we calculate a stock's beta. So generally, this is a, a fairly sticky number. It doesn't move around all too much. Um, because we have five years of, of, of data that we're looking at. Now, we do weight um, more the most recent data, so the, the data over the last year, uh, more heavily than we would data from five years ago. So current movements do have more impact on that beta calculation that we're making. Um, but it'll, it'll be interesting to see, as um, you mentioned, Rogers specifically, but also consumer staples. Um, as a sector, we've seen the volatility pick up there as well. So it'll be interesting to see once um, the calculations are done, you know, what, what the numbers look like. But essentially what we do is, again, we're calculating a five-year, we're calculating a beta using five years of data for each stock, um, you know, in the geographic area. And, you know, for ZLB, we're, we're looking at Canada, obviously. And the, the first thing we're really looking at, because this is an existing portfolio, is um, the names that are currently in the portfolio, how many of those have become what we'll call a high beta stock, or at least not a low beta stock? Um, and we have cutoffs for how we measure that. Um, and so once we've identified a couple of stocks whose volatility and beta might have picked up, and you know Rogers potentially is a candidate here, um, I couldn't say for sure exactly how that'll look. Uh, but but again, you know, given recent volatility, it, it, it could be. Um, uh, one of these constituents that we've seen the beta increase. Um, and if it's increased too much, we'll remove that from the portfolio and we'll add in um, some of the stocks that, that aren't in there yet that might have a lower beta or that are very complementary to the stocks that are already in the portfolio and creates a portfolio with a, with a lower beta or lower volatility. Um, so, so that's kind of the process uh, that we look at. 
Um, as I mentioned, it's five years of data we look at. So there's never a huge amount of turnover um, when we look at these strategies, particularly in Canada, it's around a 10 to 15% type of turnover event. So you'll get a few companies coming in and a few going out. And at the same time, um, you'll get a reweighting of all the other constituents, you know, whether it's kicked out of the portfolio or not, um, it will be reweighted. And, you know, maybe Rogers is one of those that might see it, its weight go down a little bit potentially um, if this volatility continues. And if we do see um, indeed that the beta has ticked up a little bit, um, that gets a lower weight within the portfolio. So overall, we want to tilt towards those stocks that have the lowest betas. Um, but we do have those portfolio level controls on there as well. So we're, we're not too invested in the one sector. There's not too much concentration in any one sector or any one uh, risk factor. So it creates a nice um, overall portfolio solution. Um, and, and that's what we'll be doing as we head into the end of the year. Um, and as I said, you know, generally, we don't expect a huge amount of turnover in, in these stocks. ZLB in particular tend to be a, a pretty stable portfolio over time. Great. Thanks for that, Chris. And I think it is important to emphasize that you do look at longer term uh, five-year measure, of course, weighted to the front year, but regardless, making sure that we really pick up any of those uh, risks in the marketplace that, that may be hidden for a year or two. So some good points there about the portfolio construction. Thanks. You're listening to Views from the Desk, a weekly edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. If you're enjoying today's discussion, we encourage you to tune into our deep dive episodes where we take you under the hood of BMO Gam's product suite. Check out episode 69 in this same podcast series where we take a deeper look at fixed income and equity solutions to hedge against inflation from U.S. tips and real return bonds to base metals and oil. Now let's turn to fixed income uh, because for advisors, it seems more and more of the narrative that they're hearing is moving away from transitory inflation towards, you know, an acceptance of, of rising inflation overall. How does that change your view of central bank activity as we focus on the short end for 2022? Uh, as well, can you give us your thoughts on the consensus on the movement for overnight rates? And of course, give us an ETF that will help us to, to navigate uh, these short-term yield moves. Sure. So, um, in terms of transitory, I think it really depends on who you ask, right? I think if you ask the Fed, uh, they would definitely still claim that a lot of the inflation is transitory in nature. Uh, but in reality, I think you're right. I think, you know, people are starting to recognize that a lot of the inflation that we're seeing is um, actually sustained or more durable than we originally thought. Um, but I think one of the one of the issues out there is that, you know, there's no technical definition of what transitory means in terms of timeline. So, I think for the most part, I think the Fed is going to call it transitory until they can't. Um, but when you look at, you know, CPI in the U.S., it's, you know, last measure, it came in at 5.4%. In Canada, it came in at 4.4%. So, you know, if you look further out over the next couple of months, it's, it's hard to, you know, rationalize how, you know, inflation is going to normalize within the next 12 months or so. I think with a lot of the economies at this point opening up as hospitalization uh, rates, you know, hopefully remain relatively low. Um, I think, you know, demand is going to come back online much faster than supply can. So um, that really means, you know, inflation, uh, for the most part, I think it's going to get worse before it actually gets better. So in terms of, you know, central bank activity and the impact on the short end of the curve, um, definitely, you know, the front end of the curve is definitely um, experiencing quite the shock given the recent um, 
you know, the recent uh, Fed outlining its uh, plan on tapering. Um, but the Bank of Canada, you know, more than likely it's going to move first. Uh, the market right now, uh, the OIS market is implying a, a quarter point move um, sometime in April of next year, uh, which I think is, you know, more than a reasonable um, assumption. But, you know, if you look at the Bank of Canada, I think the Bank of Canada has, you know, a, a two things to, to look out for. I think higher commodity prices has translated to a stronger Canadian dollar over the last couple of months, which limits how fast they can move. Um, also, record household debt in Canada still remains an issue. So that places, you know, somewhat of a ceiling in terms of how much they could move rates as well. Uh, so I do think the Bank of Canada does have a limited amount of bullets in, in terms of, you know, how fast they could move rates and how many times they could move rates. So uh, they definitely have to use them uh, wisely. Uh, the Fed, on the other hand, you know, they outlined their plans in terms of tapering. Over the next six months, uh, they're going to be tapering, and then they're going to take a pause for six months. And then the plan is to uh, start raising its overnight rate. So at least uh, we're at least a year out in terms of when they're going to move their overnight rate. Uh, that's the base case. But you know, I think given the economic recovery, given the pace of inflation that we're seeing, uh, there is a possibility that they move faster. So you know, as I mentioned, I think the front end of the curve, um, the front end of the curve is definitely reacted. The U.S. two-year uh, it's doubled since the last FOMC meeting, which was September 22nd. So that's at around 44 basis points right now. Uh, the Canadian two-year also doubled um, since September 22nd. So that's now 86 basis points. So that differential between the Canadian and U.S. Uh, is another good indication that you know Canada is more than likely going to move first. Um, so in terms of ETFs, um, you know the way I play it right now. Obviously, if you look at the yield curve. Uh, the yield curve is, you know, we've seen a rate rise across the yield curve. So uh, very limited um, areas in which you could navigate around duration risk. Uh, you, could, you could go into credit, but in terms of, you know, navigating duration risk alone, uh, the two ETFs I like is uh, ZST and ZUS.U. So these are our ultra short term ETFs. So ZST is our Canadian ultra short. ZUS.U is our ultra short US. Um, so essentially what we do is we buy uh Canadian bonds that mature in less than one year for ZST, and then uh, U.S. bonds that mature in less than one year for ZUS.U. But the key point here is, you know, for these two ETFs, we're holding bonds until they mature. Uh, and why that's key is because anytime you get a spike in, you know, short-term rates, uh, any impact that it's going to have on the bonds in the portfolio is going to be superficial in nature because because we are holding them until maturity. Uh, they ultimately mature at par value anyway. I think the other benefit to these ETFs is that, you know, as rates move up and as, you know, bonds on the short end uh, prices go up because of that yield shock, uh, we're, you know, we're transitioning into, into the portfolio, whether we're crossing them into the portfolio or buying them in the secondary market, uh, we're going to be buying them at a lower price, which means a higher yield. So they're going to get replenished with newer bonds coming into the portfolio at a higher yield as well. So I you know, ZST and ZUS.U, I think, is a good way to hide from the recent, uh, you know, rate rate moves. But it's also a good way to naturally uh, protect yourself from a rising rate environment as well. Right. Thanks for those insights, Alfred. Certainly a lot happening in the in the fixed income world. I mean, certainly Rogers' is story of the week, but uh, lots of different things uh, moving markets around right now. So a great update there. Thanks. I want to turn now over to emerging markets with our ZEM uh, and, of course, focus the discussion on China. 
where advisors have been asking, you know, despite the the recent headlines and the risks with Evergrande, uh, does this look like a, an entry point for EM or is it more of a buyer beware uh, as we have seen uh, some good price uh, appreciation in EM this month? Thanks. Yeah, you know, we are starting to see uh, ZEM uh, stabilize there. So, you know, a big part of that certainly has to do with China. Um, so even though China has hinted that it doesn't want to bail out Evergrande. Um, it seems like, you know, the steps it's taken to, you know, essentially ring fence a lot of the possible contagion is doing a lot to calm the markets at this point. Um, so China essentially told its regulators to tell uh, the country's largest bank to essentially ease credit for home buyers. Uh, that's going to be supportive of the uh, property sector. They also injected uh, the equivalent of 19 billion U.S. dollars uh, into the banking system as well. Uh, China also bought out Evergrande's stake in a struggling bank, um, and they're also looking to uh, support the healthy developers in the sector as well. So that's gone a long way just in terms of supporting um, you know, any possible contagion or ring fencing, any possible contagion of Evergrande. Uh, but when you look at ZEM, which is our you know, emerging market equity ETF, uh, there is no exposure to Evergrande. And even when you look broader, uh, just in terms of exposure to the Chinese real estate and development uh, areas, uh, it's it's almost zero zero exposure, zero point one exposure to that industry, um, and in terms of you know exposure to Chinese banks, it's less than half a percent, it's forty eight basis points, um, and even when you look broader, just in terms of the real estate sector across um, all different countries in ZEM, it's only on one point nine percent. So I think any possible contagion or you know resulting from uh, Evergrande uh, in, in terms of direct exposure, it's, it's very limited. Um, I think the news of Evergrande has largely overshadowed, I think, a lot of the you know, long-term positives of EM equities. I think, you know, we've been saying on this podcast for, for a very long time that you know, a lot of the EM countries have kind of moved away from being commodity producers. A lot of the most innovative technology companies are actually, you know, reside in EM countries now. So names like, you know, Samsung, Taiwan Semiconductor, Infosys, you know, these are some of the uh, companies that you're getting within ZEM. Um, but I think, you know, when it comes to growth in China, we're definitely going to see some slowing there. Uh, but the fact that, you know, China is still the manufacturing hub of the world, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Um, you know, GDP will certainly slow, but I think, you know, the middle class in China continues to expand. Uh, consum- consumption within that middle class is going to grow as well, which is going to be supportive and it's going to lift the surrounding economies as well. Um, so in terms of ZEM, I'm not sure if I'd go all in at this point, but and I certainly feel the exposure to Evergrande and other Chinese developers um, has weighed unfairly on ZEM, given the limited exposure. You know, I'd still favor U.S. and Canadian equities at this point, given that they're both on the upswing. Uh, U.S. equities particularly, you know, with earnings seasons been coming in extremely strong. But I think if you're already overweight those regions, uh, ZEM is definitely something I'd put on the radar, um, especially if you're a long-term investor and you're willing to look, you know, 12 to 16 months out. Uh, now is definitely a good time to start building up a position in ZEM. Great. Thanks for that, Alfred. Some good insights there. Uh, certainly, uh, we haven't forgotten the Evergrande story, so lots of lots of concerns still on the advisor front there. Last question for me today. Um, we're still getting a, a number of comments coming in on ZGI. Uh, we're most recently, of course, we're now talking about sort of stalled plans in the U.S. Congress around infrastructure bill. 
what's the expected outcome here? And can you put that in context with ZGI about the potential impacts to that ETF? Yeah, so, you know, we definitely are seeing a lot of, um, you know, political infighting amongst uh, Democrats in in both chambers right now, uh, which is, you know, put a stall um, to that infrastructure bill. So in the House, we're getting progressives essentially, you know, holding off until they get their terms on a social safety net expansion bill. Uh, In the Senate, we're getting two centrists essentially holding up uh, the process because they want the the top line cost of the spending bill to be reduced from 3.5 trillion to between uh, 1.5 trillion to 2 trillion. Um, But so far, you know, if you look at all the proposed reductions, so far it seems to be coming from the more of the, you know, support programs rather than the pure infrastructure spends. Um, So, for example, you know, free community college, which was originally proposed, that's likely going to be scrapped. Uh, Plans to expand Medicaid to include, you know, hearing, vision, and dental care coverage, that's likely going to be scrapped as well. Uh, But other programs that were initially built to be, you know, more permanent in nature are likely going to be more temporary now. So, you know, expanded child tax credit, expanded Medicaid, uh, those are likely going to last two to three years uh, now rather than being permanent. Um, but a bunch of other programs are likely going to be reworked as well, such as extended leave, uh, other programs um, um, as well. Um, but, you know, right now, in addition to a lot a lot of the cuts and the reworkings of the programs that they're looking at, they're also looking at more creative ways to fund these programs. Um, so some of these have been pretty extreme, such as, you know, taxing the ultra-wealthy on unrealized gain. So I think there was a proposal to tax, you know, 10 individuals, you know, um, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and, and Bill Gates, to name a few. Uh, but they, they basically wanted to tax them on unrealized gains on investments, which I think is um, pretty far-fetched at this point. Um, but the likelihood is that, you know, between the cuts and finding additional ways of, you know, funding the programs, I think some form of the bill will get passed. Um, I think the important thing to uh, keep in context is that the component that is dedicated to actual infrastructure spending seems largely intact at this point. Um, you know, for the most part, when you look at North American infrastructure, it's severely outdated, needs to be re- revitalized. Um, but, you know, since the beginning of September, which is when a lot of this political infighting began, when you look at ZGI, which is our global infrastructure ETF, it's up 1.1%. You look at ZSP, which is our S&P 500 ETF, that's roughly flat at, you know, it's down 62 basis points since that period. So I think the long-term story for infrastructure spending is still intact. Um, I think, you know, some form of the bill will get passed, but the actual infrastructure spend uh, remains largely unchanged, which should be good for ZGI. Right. Thanks for that, Alfred. Uh, More good insights and certainly another interesting story that we're all keeping our eyes on. That's all the questions we have for today. So I want to thank everyone for listening in. Uh, We really appreciate your time. And of course, thanks to both Chris and Alfred. Some really good insights across uh, different asset classes today, giving us some good things to to think about as we go back to our own day-to-day. So once again, appreciate those insights. And with that, I just want to wish everyone a great day. And thanks again for joining us. Thank you to Mark Rays, Chris McKinney, and Alfred Lee for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. If you want to keep Rogers Communications in the portfolio, but don't want too much exposure to the family drama and corporate governance battles, we heard about BMO's covered call utilities ETF today, ZWU, 
as a strategy to help balance the exposure and risk trade-off. Our experts also discussed a new inflation trade using short-term bond exposures, Chinese equities, infrastructure investments, and more. For more information about the ETFs discussed in this podcast, check out the episode notes, contact your regional BMO ETF specialist, or visit the Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. That's bmoetfs.ca. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio managers represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. Investments should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives, and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statement that necessarily depends on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.